welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, brought to you by the Community Orchard Network. In this monthly radio show and podcast, I'm going to take you on a journey. We'll learn about fruit trees, permaculture, food forests, and so much more. So if you're a gardener and enjoy growing your own food, if you love trees and especially fruit trees, or if you're just interested in living a more sustainable life, you've come to the right place. I'm Susan Poisner, your host for today. So get ready, roll up your sleeves, and let's dig into today's episode. Good afternoon and welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host Susan Poisner right here on Reality Radio 101. To contact Susan Live, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. Hi everyone, welcome to the show today. After a long, hot summer, autumn has finally arrived. So the other day I went for a walk in my local ravine. It was so breathtaking. One of those special days when the leaves on the trees are vibrant shades of red, yellow, and orange. The sugar maples are always the trees I love best in the fall. Their multicolored autumn leaves remind me of a yummy scoop of lemon, orange, and raspberry sorbet. But leaves aren't just beautiful. They're educational, too. You can learn so much from your tree just by looking at its leaves at any time of year. You can learn if the tree has nutritional deficiencies. You can see if it's experiencing drought stress. And you can learn lots more. Now, while this is useful information for anyone who has a tree, it's even more useful if you grow fruit trees, because fruit trees can be a bit temperamental, and it's our job to understand their needs so that we can support them. So, in the first part of the show today, we'll talk about tree leaves and what we can learn from them. Then, part two is about cherry tree rootstock. Now, if you're ordering a new cherry tree to plant this coming spring, your rootstock choice is just as important as the cherry cultivar you choose to grow. I'll talk to Lynn Long, a professor at Oregon State University and a cherry specialist. He'll tell us about the different types of cherry rootstock that are available and why we should really take a few moments to learn about them. Now, as always, I love to hear your questions and comments during the show. So, stay near your computer or mobile device and email your questions to me live at instudio101 at gmail.com, and I'll read them on the show. But first, let's learn about leaves. On the line is Linda Chalker-Scott, an associate professor and horticulturalist at Washington State University and the author of a book I really enjoyed called How Plants Work, The Science Behind the Amazing Things That Plants Do. Linda, how are you today? I'm fine, Susan, and thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for being on the show. Before we dig in, do tell me about your book. What was your goal in writing How Plants Work? Well, um, as someone who started out her career um, in marine biology and then late on switched to plants, it was interesting to find out how much I knew about how animals and, and humans as animals work in terms of their physiology, but how plants were so much different. And I think a lot of times we as gardeners kind of make some assumptions about um, what plants like, don't like, and a lot of those assumptions are based on how, how we would react to something. And the more I got into my program in plant physiology, the more I, I understood that <laughs> Plants are nothing like people or animals. And so my goal was to help explain um, a lot of plant physiology to gardeners 
in terms that weren't um, terribly scientific, um, not dumbing it down, but just making it more understandable and translating the science. Well, so let's talk. Uh, let's talk about fall leaves then. You know, right now it's such beautiful color here. Um, I don't know. Do you guys have beautiful colors there where you live as well? It depends on the plants and the weather. We don't. Uh, you know, I lived in Buffalo for eight years, and the colors there were just amazing. And it's because you get those those huge temperature shifts. You know, in the fall when it's very cold at night and very warm during the day, and we don't have that as much here. So. Our, our colors aren't as vibrant, um, but there are some things that um, I have a cat syrup, for instance, that doesn't ever turn red, but has the most amazing yellow and, and um, orange colors as it starts to, to go to sleep. Well, so that's a good question with regards to the colors. Like, how does how what what does it mean when the tree goes has red leaves in the fall and another tree has yellow leaves? What's going on exactly when the leaves turn colors before they fall off? Well, um, what the plant's doing is busy scavenging all the nutrients out of the leaves and storing them away before the leaves die. So with our deciduous trees, um, you know, they're, they're, those tissues just can't survive cold weather, and so the, the tree just um, sloughs them off, um, you know, or what's called senescence. And what the tree does is want to salvage as much as it can um, from those leaves before they go. And so it starts um, breaking them down into different components. And so when you see the color change, one of the first things that gets taken out and saved is nitrogen, and that's in the chlorophyll. So the chlorophyll goes away, so the green color goes away, and then other colors start to appear. Now, the red color isn't something that was hiding there all along, um, unlike the yellow and orange, but the red color is from anthocyanins, and it's part of the process of the trees scavenging um, nutrients that the anthocyanins are made and also probably helps it survive, the leaves survive um, cold temperatures as this process is going on. So so that's the red's function. And what about yellow and orange? Were they there underneath the green already? Um, and what do they represent? Yeah, the, the, orange, the orange pigments are carotenoids. Um, the word carrot uh, is, is uh, where carotenoid is, is um, linked to, and then the yellow ones um, are xanthophylls. So the yellow and orange are part of the photosynthetic system along with the chlorophyll. So if you were to look at chloroplasts, you know, up close and personal, you would see green pigments, orange pigments, and yellow pigments. It's the red pigments they're not photosynthetic, and those are the ones that are involved in other processes. So, so for instance, if you have a beautiful tree out in your local ravine or your local park, and it's got very red leaves, and you don't see a bit of yellow and orange, does that mean it sucked out the other, um, you know, nutrients related to those colors, and it just has gone straight to red, saying, okay, this is the process, whereas others take out the colors more slowly? How would you describe that? Well, the, the green always goes first because it's high nitrogen. So the green goes away, and then, then the red will show up if, if there's anthocyanins in the leaves. Um, and then those will go away because they're transient, and then the orange and yellow start to show up. Oh. So the, the orange and yellow are a little bit harder to break down. They're not as valuable um, nutrient-wise as um, the, the chlorophyll is, and that's why you see them last. And, and a lot of the yellow just stays there because it's pretty tightly bound. So you have yellow and brown left at the end. Um, yeah, so it, it's I've got this image as you're talking of a package of M&Ms. <laughs> so let's say the M&Ms are like all yeah. these different nutrients, you know, your, your yellow is your, you know, or your orange is your beta carotene or your yellow is your something else. And so it just helps us to understand that each color actually represents a different type of nutrient. I love that analogy. I'm going to start suggesting people eat their M&Ms in that order. <laughs> uh -huh, that's a great idea. Now, fruit trees are interesting, and I work a lot with fruit trees, obviously. They are beautiful in the spring and summer. Then the fall comes, and boom, you just get, like, depressing-looking, maybe a little yellowish leaves. Why don't they get any of the fun colors? At least lots of them don't. Um... That's a really good question, and, and I guess the, the simplest answer would be it's, it's genetics. You know, so some some species just don't have the the red pigments as part of their senescing process, and it doesn't mean that they're not as cold hardy or something like that. It's just they have a different grouping of um, pigments that are happen. They're all called flavonoids. So some of those are um, 
some are red and some are blue and some are purple and some are actually white. And it's, it's the ones we see, of course, the ones that are, are most visible to us, the red ones. So we see those, we focus on those. Um, a lot of times we'll um, cultivate plants that have those, but with fruit trees, we're not really looking for beautiful foliage. We're looking for really delicious fruit. Mm. So the traits that get selected for have more to do with fruit production rather than how beautiful the leaves are. That's interesting. Actually, if there's any listeners that know of fruit trees that do have beautiful fall colors, I'd love to get an email from you guys um, to hear about them because that is interesting. There must be some that have lovely uh, fall leaf colors. So in studio 101 at gmail.com. So let's talk about why are leaves important in general when it comes to considering the health of our trees. So um, we're talking not about fall colors and the beauty. We're talking about all, you know, season long during the growing season. Why should we be looking at the leaves of our trees? You know, it's uh, the longer I've done this, more of I've learned from leaves myself, just uh, partially from science and partially just observational. And you can really tell a lot what's going on, especially with um, water relations in your plant, just by paying attention to the leaves. So, for instance, um, and this isn't true with deciduous plants, and so I, I, you know, I'll beg forgiveness. Um, I'm not going to be talking right now about fruit trees. But, for instance, if you have some evergreen shrubs and you notice that um, the current season's leaves are smaller than previous leaves, um, that means there wasn't enough water during the time that those leaves were expanding. So by just kind of focusing on size and shape, thickness um, of leaves, you can kind of get an idea of how well um, the roots are working, how much water is available. Um, by looking at leaves and uh, damage patterns, you can um, uh, tell what happened maybe last year in terms of temperature and water. Um, and you start linking all this together, and then you're able to um, kind of do a health assessment of your tree um, just by looking at, at leaves. Well, it's interesting you talk about the size of the leaves because and drought. This summer uh, here in Ontario, uh, we really had a very, very dry summer. Um, and I don't know if it can happen this quickly, but I do notice that some of the apple trees have smaller leaves than they used to, and the color is just not as glossy as before. So I wonder if that might be something to do with whether it's drought this year or last year, you know, maybe they didn't get enough water. What would you think? Well, we're seeing a lot of that too. And, and um, with both evergreens and, and deciduous, we saw this year um, much poorer leaf production, either not as many leaves or leaves were smaller. And what that is um, telling us um, is that a year before that, I think most of uh, a lot of the a lot of the continent had some pretty serious drought issues, and if you have a drought during that season, of course your fine roots die back, and then when the next spring rolls along, you don't have as many fine roots to take up the water for good leaf expansion, so you get smaller leaves the the following year. So, keeping that in mind, you know if you have a particularly droughty year, hot year, um, and you haven't been able to irrigate that you're going to have smaller and fewer leaves the following year. You know what? It, it makes sense in a way because you think about it, like you, if you don't eat well and you don't have enough good food and you need to run a race, you're not going to run as far if, as if you've eaten well and had you're well hydrated and stuff like that. So it's kind of similar. Um, I have an interesting yeah. email here, actually, um, from a listener called Eamon. And um, interesting question. I don't know the answer to this, but we'll find out if you do. Hi, Susan. Great show. A question for your guest. What is meant by restoration horticulture? Thank you. Have you heard that term before? Restoration horticulture. Um, restoration horticulture. Well, um, I'm, I'm wondering if that if it means ecological restoration, in which case I'm really well familiar with that. Um, my previous position at the University of Washington, I was involved in a um, an urban horticulture program there that had restoration um, ecology as part of that, and I was the horticulturist that kind of helped with a lot of these projects. So, yes, what it is is it's looking at degraded environments, um, you know, usually ones that we've degraded, and trying to get them back into um, a functional system using native plants. Uh-huh. So, for instance, if you have an area that was, um, you know, industrial area or perhaps it was... Uh, old uh, landfill or something like that, you know, you, you try to get, um, you know, you get rid of the weeds, the invasive weeds, and, and then try to get back into, into um, native plants. And you can never get right back to where you were, but at least you can get it 
with enough um, structural and habitat diversity with your plants so that it becomes functional again. Well, that's interesting. Well, Eamon, I hope that answers your question. Um, we were talking about, oh, Eamon says thank you. That answers my question. Thank you, Eamon. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, now, we were talking about drought stress, and, and I've noticed that in different types of trees, and it, it seems to look different. Sometimes some trees seem to go brown around the edges uh, on their leaves, like certain types of maples. Or um, do, Does it look the same in every tree? Are there different? Uh, does every tree have its own way of expressing its stress when it comes to drought stress? Well, the nice thing about drought stress is that it's it's a pretty good signature when you have it. So if you have, you know, what we'll, we'll fancily call uh, tip and marginal necrosis, so you have, you know, browning around the edges and at the tip, that's from leaf drought. Now, exactly what's causing the drought is the question. Is it that you don't have a good enough root system, not enough water, water's too salty, too hot so that you're more evaporation than water uptake? I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons that leaves will show drought stress and have that, that browning around the tips and um, margins, um, but it's because there's not enough water in the leaf, and so the water is lost initially from the tips and margins. Okay, so that's that makes sense. So basically what we're saying is drought stress, you know, it'll give you some more clues. The, the different symptom will give you a clue as to what is the cause of this problem. So right. let's move on to nutrient deficiency. I have... Um, a colleague who is like a magician when it comes to fruit trees in particular, but we're talking about all types of trees today. Um, but he can look at the leaf and he can tell me exactly what nutrients are lacking in, you know, in the tree. Um, is that some, is that real? Can we really find out uh, nutrient deficiencies? Do we need, some, you know, uh, soil testing anymore? <laughs> How much can you tell from well, the leaf? Yeah, well, you can tell what the leaf doesn't have, but what the leaf doesn't have and what the soil doesn't have can be two completely different things. Mm. So, yes, you can, you, you can diagnose, you know, if you have overall leaf chlorosis, um, especially in the older leaves, you can pretty much say, you know, there's not enough nitrogen there. Or if you have intervenal chlorosis where the veins are green but the tissues in between are yellow, you could say, well, it's probably iron or maybe it's manganese that's not in the leaf, but you don't know if that's what the soil problem is. And what we're seeing a lot with um, home gardens and landscapes is an overuse of phosphorus. And an overuse of phosphorus can cause a deficiency in iron or manganese in the leaves. So it looks like you have an iron deficiency, but actually what you have is phosphate toxicity. So I, I would say that soil tests are even more important now so that we can see what we have too much of, not just what we have too little of. Okay, so you talked about two types of chlorosis, and just for listeners who may not know, what will that look like? The leaf will be completely yellow, or you, you describe that a little bit. Yeah, so if you have, if you have um, total chlorosis like you might if you have no nitrogen, then the leaves, well, they kind of look like they do right now. They're just they're yellow um, without any green markings at all. On the other hand, if you can see the veins as being green, so and they're, they're really very beautiful, so it's kind of an interesting disorder, um, you know, very fine uh, uh, tracings of, of green and yellow in between. And that is generally iron, although it can also be manganese that's deficient. Okay. And, we, you know, when you're, when you're intensively producing um, crops, whether it's fruit or something else, um, you can run out of these nutrients in the soil, but for people that just have one or two trees at home, it's usually not from a deficiency. It's oftentimes from a toxicity mm. of, of some other nutrient. Okay. What about disease? Is that something that we'll ever see in the leaves of our trees? I'm sorry. I, I missed the first part. What about disease? Will we oh, ever disease. see disease um, on the leaves? I mean, sometimes you see sort of canker oozing stuff from the trunk and things like that. Do, does it ever manifest itself on the leaves? Sure, and, you know, and that's also a good um, clue about what's going on, too. A lot of times, you know, you'll see things, especially as leaves um, start to become stressed. And when they become stressed, um, they lose a lot of their defenses, and so then the opportunistic um, pests and pathogens come in. So as leaves start senescing, you know, you'll see more leaf spot and, you know, bacterial types of, uh, of issues on leaves, but it's not... The, it's not a disease so much that's causing that. It's just that the tissue is busy dying and other things are starting to, to grow on it. Um, and that's what you see a lot, especially with drought stress, is you'll see as, as leaves, um, 
in a hot summer, you know, they'll start turning colors early um, as a way of, of uh, saving water. But they're also starting to senesce, and because they're dying early, then those opportunistic things appear earlier. So what I'm trying to say is these are things you can treat. Um, it's just, you know, kind of natural progression. Um, what you want to be looking for, of course, is diseases that appear on otherwise really healthy, robust leaves, and those are the things you'd want to try to treat. Okay, so what about uh, the last question I have here is um, curling of the leaves. Is that something, I know, again, you see it in fruit trees, but sometimes the leaves curl up at the side. Does that mean anything at all? Well, it can, and again, it's one of those things where you have to kind of pay attention to what's been going on, especially weather-wise. Um, there are, you know, the problem is that a lot of times, you know, we, we try to go to these nutritional deficiency tables, and we'll have all kinds of pictures of, you know, twisted, distorted, and cupped leaves as being a deficiency of calcium or something like that. And oftentimes, it's actually not a deficiency. It's something else going on. Um, it, it could be something as simple as a, as a pest, you know, one of these leaf rollers that's causing it, and you can, you know, look closely to see if there's signs of insects. But sometimes, it's because of what's happened while the leaf is expanding. And so this is something that's really interesting about, about leaves. You know, once they get to their full size, um, they, they get this nice waxy cuticle. It helps keep water in and keep pests and other things out. But while they're expanding, they can't have that covering. And so as leaves are expanding, they're very sensitive and vulnerable to different pests and diseases um, and environmental conditions. So if you have a late um, frost when leaves are expanding, then you'll end up getting some brown areas in the leaf, which will cause cupping and distortion. And it's actually because of that temperature difference. It's not because of some kind of nutritional deficiency or pest or disease. Well, so it seems like uh, leaves really do have a lot to say, but I mean, it sounds like it could be an entire book just on leaves and what they tell us. <laughs> That's your next book. <laughs> oh, yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess, you know, it's it may also be sort of like human skin. There's some people who say that if you have skin problems, that it's a sign of other things inside that maybe aren't quite right. Um, and we can't see our tree's roots either. So maybe that the leaves help us. That's right, absolutely. I can tell you what's going on, at least with uh, roots and water uptake, if nothing else. Okay, well, in a minute, we're, we're going to have a little commercial break, but I have a very interesting email from a listener called Janice. Don't know where Janice is, but Janice says, Hi, Linda, I'm a sport diver. Any great stories about you being a marine biologist? <laughs> it's funny, not quite on the topic, but it, I would love to hear a little story uh, if you have one. Okay. <laughs> Um, well, let's see. Unfortunately, I wasn't the, um, the deep-sea type of marine biologist. I worked in what was called the, the superliteral zone, which is up in the splash zone. So I worked with little tiny tide pools um, way up that rarely get covered with, with water. They just got splashed from, from the ocean and rainwater, which is a very stressful environment. And I worked with a little tiny orange copepod that, that lived in those tide pools. So... That's about as exciting as it got for me. <laughs> well, that's great. So, Linda, we've talked in general about tree leaves and what they teach us. Let's look at some examples. Were you able to find uh, the, fa the Orchard People Facebook page? I did, and unfortunately, when I looked at them, a lot of them had to do with insect damage, and I'm not an entomologist, so I can't help with that, <laughs> and I'm not a pathologist so I can't help with that either. <laughs> That's okay. We do have um, a few pictures, though. We've got the first one is the hickory uh, with chlorosis, I think. Can you see that first picture? You know, let me go to that because I closed on my Facebook page. Just sorry about that. That's okay. You know, I have, I'm quite new to Facebook, and I get quite confused most of the time. So I totally understand. <laughs> but, uh, okay, yeah. Just a second. Yeah, have a look. But yeah, there's a f just a few pictures up here I'd love to discuss before um, we sign off for this particular interview on the show today. Th this first picture that once you log in, you'll find I took during a walk. Um, and it's, uh, I think it's a hickory tree. And I thought these leaves were so beautiful. They're green with yellow. And I thought this is lovely. But sadly, it's not a good thing. To have these sort right, of I think that, and that's their first picture. Is that correct? It is. The first one yes. On there? Yeah. Yeah. So it's so pretty. I mean, gorgeous patterns. You can see the veins on the leaves. Um, you can see the yellow. Um, 
but this is not the way they're supposed to look. No, and this is a really great example of that intervenal chlorosis that I was talking about. So you can see that there's, um, you know, the, the yellow tissue in between is, is uh, the intervenal part, and then the veins, oddly enough, the, the major veins themselves are not green, but the area right around the veins is green. But it's the same, it's the same problem. So this could be um, one of a few things. It's definitely not, um, it's not a virus. It's not anything alive. It's, it's um, either from a nutritional deficiency, a nutritional toxicity, or a pH problem. So you'd want, to, you'd want to be able to test your soil pH to see if it was too alkaline because that can be a problem. My guess is it's probably not that because you normally can grow hickories just fine around there. Um, it's either from too little iron in the leaf or too little manganese. Now, my guess would be manganese just because of the pattern and that can be because there's too much phosphate in the soil. So this would be a great, a great example of when it would be good to do a soil test and to find out exactly how much iron, how much manganese, and how much phosphate you've got. Because uh-huh. with the, more, the more phosphate you have, the harder it is for the tree to take up iron and manganese. So what would the correction be? Like, could you correct a, a problem like that? You know, um, <laughs> this is one of those great questions that I have not figured out a wonderful answer to yet. I'm going to, let's take the easiest thing first. If it's a pH issue, it's too alkaline, then yes, there's ways to make the soil more acidic. You can add sulfur um, on an ongoing basis to, to bring the, the pH down. Um, my guess is probably not that. It's probably from um, you know either the iron or manganese. So looking at the, the soil test, finding out if you've got um, a lack of one of those two things, and that could be added if, if you do have that problem. But let's take the most common occurrence, which is too much phosphate. And there isn't an easy way to fix that quickly. Um, the trick is to draw down the phosphate levels like you would with any, like any kind of crop would do. So if you were able to plant something fast-growing, um, that would suck down all the nutrients, not just phosphorus, but, but you know, grow quickly, take the nutrients down. You could draw down the phosphorus that way and then add back the things that you were going to be missing now, like nitrogen, because you'd be drawing that down too. But that's a way of, of drawing it down um, relatively quickly. The other way would be to add um, like a, a good uh, wood chip mulch, which is going to get your, your microbial population up and running, and that can also draw the phosphate down but it takes longer. It's interesting because one of the things in the fruit tree care workshops that I teach is the importance of understanding nutrition and what each of the nutrients gives um, your tree. And I guess the biggest problem that people have is if they incorrectly apply amendments because once you get the soil out of balance, it's really hard to get it back into balance. So it's kind of like you got to be so careful. You do. And what I, what I try to um, suggest to people is kind of, and this is one of the times where I do use a human analogy, you know, if, if, if we aren't feeling great, we don't go to, you know, the nutrient supplement store and buy everything, you know, on the shelves and, and take everything. You know, we, we go in and we have lab tests done to find out what exactly it is going on so we know how to treat it. And that's the same thing that a soil test will do. You know, it'll give you a baseline uh, from which to work, and that'll help you figure out how to, you know, how, how to correct deficiencies easily. And then the balance, as you say, it's going to be tricky. But just getting um, nothing else than a really healthy microbial population there, busy chomping down on um, uh, wood chip mulch is going to help correct things. Hmm. Interesting. I, I guess we'll wrap up with this question. What would you suggest? You know, uh, listeners are across North America and they may have, you know, a native tree in their front yard, or whether it's a fruit tree, a native tree, an ornamental tree. What should they do if they see something strange happening in the leaves of their tree? Well, um, as I said before, the, the very first thing I would do just as a baseline for your entire landscape is just to have a soil test done so you know what you're working with. Um, with a lot of our soils, you know, especially if, if we're in more urbanized areas, we don't know, you know, where they came from because they're certainly not what was there in the first place. We don't know if there's um, any contamination there, possibly from lead or, you know, from house paint or something like that. I mean, all these things can have an impact on, on tree health. So just getting a soil test done and then really paying attention to 
um, water issues, you know, looking at differences in leaf sizes from year to year, um, especially with what I've seen a lot now with, with perched water tables. And this is a common thing when you have improperly amended landscapes. And that's not to say that, that a gardener may have not had, had done this themselves, but when a house is built, for instance, like our house, um, they dug all the clay out from where the foundation went, and then they, they threw it in the front yard and covered it up with topsoil, mm. which we didn't discover until years later when our dogwood failed and could not figure out why in the world um, the leaves were getting smaller and smaller every year, dug it up, and it was basically rotted. And it turned out we had this um, perched water table and it, no drainage. So we took it out, moved it, actually recovered, and it's doing fine now. Um, and everything we have growing there now is very shallowly rooted. Hmm. Because you just don't know, you know, what what your soil looks like unless you get a, you know, an auger or something and take a big core out to see what kind of um, interesting patterns you have with, with fill. <laughs> yeah, I think that's good advice. I mean, also what I do is, uh, you know, I've learned the hard way that if you're thinking of planting a tree, something that needs like lots of root space, you know, dig a hole before you buy the tree. Because sometimes you do see really like hard subsoil and not good soil or, you know, construction garbage in the soil and you just think, mm, maybe I should build a raised bed or something. But, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, if even before you decide to plant a tree and, and you think you've got really crummy soil, the best way to prepare your soil is if you can let it just rest with a, a nice thick cover of wood chips over the top of it. A lot of the compaction and drainage issues um, solve themselves when you finally you know, get it covered up and protected from um, compaction from foot traffic and, and uh, rainwater and everything else. You just get it covered up and let the underground processes kind of start to repair the tills. Well, Linda, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it, and I hope you'll come back again one day when you write your book on leaves. <laughs> I'll be waiting for that one. <laughs> okay, well, you take care. Goodbye for now. Thanks, Susan. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Linda Chalker-Scott, an associate professor and horticulturalist at the Washington State University. And she's the author of How Plants Work, the science behind the amazing things that plants do. Coming up after a few words from our sponsors, we'll talk about cherry trees and cherry tree rootstock and why it's good to learn more about it before you buy your trees. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner, and we'll be back after this short break. Now, when I first got involved in planting fruit trees, I did a lot of research. I learned that it's essential to choose the right fruit tree cultivar for your own unique conditions and needs. And then... I learned about rootstock. You see, when you buy a fruit tree, you're really buying two trees that have been fused into one. Fruit trees are made up of rootstock, the root system from a tree that has great qualities like vigor or disease resistance. And the rootstock has been grafted together with tree number two, the scion. The scion is a branch from a tree with a fruit that you want to grow, like Macintosh apples or Bartlett pears. So your choice of rootstock will also determine the size of your tree once it's fully mature. These days you can get dwarf trees that'll be a maximum of maybe 8 feet tall when they're fully grown, or semi-dwarf trees, which are a little larger, or full-size trees. But here's the rub. Until recently, or relatively recently, when it came to cherry trees, there were not a lot of rootstock choices. So... You could get a full-size cherry tree, or you could choose a full-size cherry tree. It was one-size-fits-all, even if you wanted to plant your cherry tree in a small urban yard where you didn't have a lot of space. Now, all this has changed, and so on the line I have Lynn Long, a professor of horticulture at Oregon State University and an extension expert who specializes in cherry trees. Hi, Lynn. How are you today? Good. How are you doing, Susan? I'm doing very well. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of cherry rootstock? Am I right to say that it used to be more one-size-fits-all, and now we've got more selection? Absolutely. That's exactly right. In fact, uh, if you look at the history of the cherry industry over the years, it 
was basically one or two rootstocks, and that was all that the growers had to choose from, and all the homeowners had to choose from as well. And both of those rootstocks, or all those rootstocks, were full-size trees. And so there wasn't a whole lot of flexibility if you needed to grow a small tree in a small, small space. And then uh, sometime in the 1970s, I believe, there was a, a program that started in Germany called the uh, Gießen Program, and they started to breed cherry rootstocks. And uh, from that, we had some of the first dwarfing cherry rootstocks that were produced. And at Oregon State University and Washington State University, we were testing those rootstocks for years through the 70s and into the 80s and, and even into the 90s, and nobody was really talking about making these things commercial. Hmm. And so then I went to uh, I went to Europe in 1994, and I saw that in Europe, in places like Germany and France, they were growers were using these dwarfing rootstocks in a commercial planting. And uh, so I came back and talked to our growers and said, "Hey, you know, these rootstocks are really looking for commercial growers somewhere in this world, and we need to be trying these rootstocks as well." And that was really the beginning of using commercial. Uh, are dwarfing rootstocks rather in commercial settings here in the United States. So if if we used to have a selection of, let's say, two different types of rootstocks, both of them full-size trees, how much of a selection do we have today? Like four different kind of rootstocks, or are there many more? Uh, there's many more. Um, we've got rootstocks that will grow trees that, uh, for example, the geeseless three rootstock can grow a tree that you can keep uh, six feet tall. It's it's a very dwarfing rootstock. We don't use it much here in the United States um, for a number of different reasons, but it is being used in in uh, in Europe, and it's an extremely dwarfing tree. Uh, we also have some other rootstocks called Gisla Five that also produce very small trees, and then we get up to some of the larger rootstocks. Um, most of these. The, the Giesler rootstocks were bred in Germany, as I had mentioned earlier. And then we've got a new set of rootstocks called the Krimsk rootstocks that were actually bred in Russia. And those are some of the more popular rootstocks now in Oregon that our growers are, are using at this time. And uh, there's, there's advantages and disadvantages to all of these various rootstocks. And so uh, growers usually decide on the rootstock based upon the the sign, the variety that they choose, and also their soils and, and their climatic conditions. And so there's a lot of factors going into choosing which rootstock you want uh, based upon the, those, uh, those factors. Well, it's funny because I think in terms of customizing, you know, when you, um, I don't know, what do we have customized in life? You know, you, you're kind of saying, well, I want my tree to be a certain height, so I'll customize it by choosing this type of rootstock. Or I want my tree to be disease resistant. I mean, maybe some of them give those types of benefits. What are the various benefits that we might be looking for when choosing a rootstock? Well, so, yeah, so... Um there are certainly some benefits you can gain from some of these dwarfing rootstocks. One is that they come into production a lot faster than these full-size rootstocks. So with a full-size rootstock, it may take five or six years for you to get your first cherries off of the tree. With the dwarfing rootstocks, you can expect fruit in the second year or maybe the third year after you plant the tree. So that, you know, that's a huge benefit not only for the commercial grower, but also for the homeowner as well. Nobody wants to wait around and see their this big old tree growing and growing and growing and not producing any fruit. So that's certainly um, a benefit. The other benefit uh, for, for homeowners is that you can put a, a tree in your backyard without taking up a lot of space. And uh, that is not only a function of the rootstock, but also the way you prune the tree and, and, the, and the training system that you choose as well. And so now we have the ability between the, the rootstock that we choose and the training system that we choose to grow trees that are no more than eight feet tall and we can harvest all the fruit from the ground without the use of, of ladders. Hmm. And that's a huge step forward for, for cherry trees, what used to be anywhere from 20 up to 50 feet tall in the past. Wow. So we've, yeah. we've made some real strides when it comes to uh, 
cherry production, both for the homeowner and for and for the commercial grower. We we have an interesting question from a listener, Nan. She doesn't say where she's from. But she says here, Lynn, what are the health benefits from eating sweet cherries on an ongoing basis? And I think that's interesting because who knows, maybe some varieties are even more nutritious than other varieties. Do you, do you have a comment on that? Um, yeah, just just a brief comment. Yeah, certainly certainly cherries are, are, um, are, are, are one of the fruits that, that are high in anthocyanins. And so the, the health benefits from from those that we've we've heard from the medical um, uh, side of things are are clear that anthocyanins can can help reduce the potential for cancer and and uh, and uh, uh, keep the the individual uh, healthy. Um, but my understanding, and I'm not a medical doctor or or, or anything uh, close to that. But my understanding is that cherries also can help reduce the potential for gout as well. And beyond that, I really don't have any more comments uh, because that's kind of outside of my area of expertise. Well, it's interesting because, again, there are, in in addition to being lots of different types of rootstocks, there are also lots of different types of um, of cultivars that you can choose. There are either yellow cherries, I think there are, there are cherries of different colors, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so let's talk about that as well. So we've been talking about rootstocks. And I know the listeners, if they're anything like me, they're going to want to know this secret. You're a guy who works with fruit trees with cherry trees all the time. Do you have favorite varieties cultivars that you love that you think taste amazing? Oh, yeah, you always have your favorites, don't you? Um, yeah, I think you know. I think one of the favorite favorite varieties that I always enjoy every year is is Bing, and that's a variety that uh, was bred in Oregon, I think, back in the eighteen fifties or something like that. So it's been around forever, and yet it is probably you know the, the cherry that people most identify with sweet cherries. Um, it's it's got great flavor. It's got a, a great uh, uh, tart. Um, Sweet acid balance, and uh, and you know it's 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 the cherry that that people think about when they think about sweet cherries. But you're right, there are other varieties out there. Up until about the mid 1990s, most of the the cherry production industry in the United States, in particular, uh, focused on just the Bing sweet cherry. But now uh, we've got, as you as you mentioned, yellow cherry, such as the Rainier cherry. It has a totally different flavor to it. It's got a, a very uh, sweet sub-acid flavor to it, and uh, it it stands out um, as a premium cherry that 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 um, tastes um, different than than most other cherries. And because of that, um, it's it's highly sought after by the consumer. So I think those are probably my two favorite cherries, Bing and Rainier. They've both been around for a long time. We've got newer cherries that are available out there. There's been a very good breeding program out of uh, British Columbia, Canada, that has bred a lot of new varieties, varieties such as Lappins and Sweetheart and Skeena. Uh, and then there's some other varieties in other parts of the world. But really, Bing and Rainier still are my favorite uh varieties that uh, I think a lot of people would recognize. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about dwarf uh, rootstock and dwarf cherry trees, which is like, you know, relatively new compared to dwarf apple trees. Mm-hmm. These days, apples, uh, you know, in my travels around, I'm seeing more and more apple trees are grown like grapes and vineyard. They're planted really close together. They're dwarf trees. They're supported on trellises. And um, mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, does that happen now with, with cherry trees? Do you get orchards of these dwarf trees that are grown in almost, you know, espalier form? Um, is that what it, things are going to look like in the future? I think so. We've got, um, we're seeing more and more of that now with cherries as well. We are um, growing some cherries on trellises, just like apples. It's taken a long time for that to happen. 
but we are slowly moving in that direction. There's a new training system that was in uh, northern Italy called the Super Slender Axe that is a super high-density uh, system. We're planting trees anywhere from, uh, um, let's see here, two feet apart, um, 80 centimeters. And this is lots of times using that geeseless three rootstock that I mentioned earlier. So it's super dwarfing rootstock. We're planting them very close together, and we're pruning them in such, such a way that the, the fruit stays very near the trunk. And so it, it looks more like a cornfield than it does a cherry orchard uh, when, when, when these, these trees are at maturity. And so the, there, there's been a, literally a revolution that has taken place in cherry production in the last 20 years. And it's, and it's amazing to be a part of that. It does. It sounds amazing. I can't wait to see this. I have never seen it. Is there, are there any dangers? Uh, you know, a lot of, well, I have heard from a number of experts concern that some of the problems that we have with apples, like fire blight that rips through orchards and neighborhoods and communities and kills so many trees and is absolutely not curable. <laughs> um, could something like that happen with these dwarf cherries, I mean, the theory is that the reason that that fire blade is killing these um, smaller trees is because they're so small that the disease gets straight from the tips of the branches into the trunk very quickly. Whereas if it was a full-size tree, it would take a long time for the disease to work its way right down into the, the, the base of the tree, the trunk, and the roots. Do you have any concerns or any fears about um, smaller trees and dwarf trees, cherry trees, that is? Sure. Um, well, we don't have any diseases that uh, spread as quickly as fire blight in cherry trees. Probably the, the disease that we deal with on a worldwide basis more than any other disease is bacterial canker. That's a, that's a disease that causes, as the name implies, a canker or, or a lesion, a wound on, the, on a branch or a trunk and girdles that, that branch or trunk and eventually can kill the, the tree. Uh, it, it doesn't develop as quickly, doesn't, it doesn't move through an orchard as quickly as fire blight, so in that respect, the danger is not as high as it is with, with apple trees or pear trees with, with fire blight. Um, but yeah, certainly if you have small trees, um, there is that potential that, uh, that there can be infections and if they're planted close together that, that it that a disease starting in one tree can can move uh, quickly to neighboring trees. Uh, so it, that's just a part of growing fruit trees. Um, mm. you, you you know, especially with cherries, that there's always something that can happen that uh, is going to affect the. The, the yield or the quality of the fruit or or something and you have to you just have to learn to deal with those things so you've got to be aware these things are are possible and you've got to you've got to be a smart grower whether a homeowner or a commercial grower yeah I totally agree I mean I, I always say that the best time to learn about the potential fruit tree diseases that may affect your fruit tree is while your tree is still healthy especially if you grow your fruit tree organically or in a community context in your backyard where you're not using sprays, if you can learn what to recognize, then you can usually stop the progress of any disease early on. So I'm, I'm big on that kind of thing. But um, yeah, and with regards to bacterial canker, we do have a problem with that here. Everywhere I've visited, whenever I see a cherry tree, I can always find some canker. Other problems we have are rotting sort of little mummy cherries. I don't know what that is. Have you seen that? Uh, there's, there's a number of diseases that can affect the, the cherry, especially, you know, as, as cherries a, approach uh, harvest time, they, they start turning red. And at that point, they are susceptible to, uh, to rain cracking. So if you, get a, if you get a rain at the wrong time, uh, cherries can split open from the rain, and that allows diseases to, to get in, uh, diseases such as brown rot uh, can be, a, can be a, an, an important uh, uh, disease in trees just prior to harvest and then after harvest as well. It can spread through a, a, a bunch of, of 
fruit that's stored in your refrigerator or that are being shipped commercially. And so some of these, these diseases uh, can cause problems uh, either pre-harvest or post-harvest when it comes, comes to cherries, especially if there's, if there's a, an opening in the skin that's caused by rain cracking or some other um, type of, uh, of factor that, that uh, causes the, the protection of the, of the cherry fruit to break down. And that brings us back full circle to rootstock, because there are some rootstocks that do protect against the cracking. Am I correct in saying that? Um, no, not against rain cracking. Um, there, there are rootstocks that you can use that will, um, that will produce, as we've been talking about, smaller trees that you can, that you can more easily protect from the rain by putting a plastic cover over so if you've got a big cherry tree growing on, for example, a mazard rootstock, and this tree is 30 feet tall or something, it's going to be pretty hard to protect that tree from, from rain cracking by, by uh, covering it with plastic. But now if you've got a tree that's only 8 feet tall, then you've got a chance of protecting it from, from rain uh, by covering it with plastic and keeping the rain off of off the fruit. But the rootstock itself won't have an effect on, on uh, rain cracking. Aha. Okay. Well, I don't believe this, but the show is almost over. I don't know where it went. It disappeared. Um, But I want to thank you so much for being on the show today with me, Lynn, and I hope you'll come back again sometime. We can talk about more cherry issues. Sounds good. It's been my pleasure. Okay. Well, thanks so much, and goodbye for now. Bye-bye. Well, that's all for the show today. It was really great to speak to my special guests. Linda, Linda Chalker-Scott, an associate professor and horticulturalist at Washington State University, and Lynn Long, a professor of horticulture at Oregon State University. So if you want to see some of the photos we discussed on the show, you can go to Orchard People's Facebook page and have a look at the post titled The Urban Forestry Radio Show, Episode 15. And please do remember to like the Orchard People page before you go. To listen to the other episodes in the series, please visit orchardpeople.com slash network. And there you can download different episodes in the podcast series or the whole series in itself. And always, you are welcome to visit orchardpeople.com anytime and you can sign up for our information-packed monthly newsletter. Tune into the show again next month. We'll have more great guests. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. And I look forward to seeing you next month.